Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2, offering a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The U.S. immigration debate has raised some of the most difficult questions our nation has ever faced. I'm reading from Ananda Rose's website here. How can we preserve the integrity of sovereign borders while also respecting the dignity of human beings? How should a border, that imaginary line in the sand, be humanely and effectively maintained? And how should we regard the stranger in our midst? To understand the experience of those directly impacted by the immigration crisis, Ananda Rose traveled to the Sonoran Desert, it's a border region where the remains of some 2,000 migrants have been recovered over the past decade. And she interviewed Minutemen, Border Patrol agents, Catholic nuns, humanitarian workers, left-wing protesters, ranchers, and many other ordinary citizens of southern Arizona. Her hope, she writes, is that by telling people's stories, those stories can act as a catalyst to help us move past the debate in black and white terms that seems to divide us. Ananda Rose received her Ph.D. in Religion and Society from Harvard Divinity School. She's a published poet and journalist, and her book is Showdown in the Sonoran Desert, Religion, Law, and the Immigration Controversy. Ananda Rose, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So how did this start? Of course, we're all, you know, we all wonder about the immigration debate. seems intractable. Uh, We debate it. You went to the Sonoran Desert. That's right. Well, originally this book uh, was for my Harvard dissertation uh, in Religion and Society, uh, and I honed in on this particular issue about uh, migrant deaths in the Sonoran Desert uh, and looking at the intersection of religion and politics down there and seeing how uh, originally I was looking at how uh, religious organizations and communities were coming together to respond uh, in an ethical or religiously driven way to uh, the thousands of deaths that were occurring uh, since, the, since the hardening of the borders, um, the border in the late 90s. Uh, so that was the original intent, was to see how religion was motivating people to respond to this, to this tragedy. Um, and then it just grew into a larger conversation. I wanted to understand everybody's viewpoint and what, what different people on opposite sides were trying to, how they were responding, what they believed about immigration, and what solutions they had in mind. Um, So that was the idea. And this is a particularly uh, important stretch of the border. I believe the statistics, if I'm remembering this correctly, 14% of the border, something like that, but 50% of the deaths over the past, what, 10 years? Right, and this is because of of what I said, the hardening of borders uh, under, uh, you know, Clinton and Bush uh, crackdowns. So uh, what happened was that, uh, for example, you had Operation Hold the Line in Texas, and that put a lot more troops along the Rio Grande uh, and made that a harder place to cross. And then there's Operation Gatekeeper uh, in Southern California, which really bolstered the border, uh, mainly in urban crossing zones like Tijuana and San Diego, so with fences and other uh, infrastructure and personnel. And then, of course, there was Operation Streamline, which began in Arizona uh, and started cracking down there, too. So what happened was what, what often people call the funnel effect, which means that people um, who usually took more, uh, I would say, easier routes in uh, were then being forced into the depths of the desert, uh, the Sonoran Desert in particular, and, and perishing of 
uh, dehydration and, and hyperthermia and these sort of these sort of things. The the journey became much more treacherous and perilous, and um, people had to take much more many more risks. So um, that's that's the cause behind behind these deaths. So people would have crossed in urban areas or or closer to urban areas. Uh, now, because those stretches of the border are more secure, uh, they're they're venturing down to the desert. Exactly right, and and you know the, the smuggling business is is very dangerous, and a lot of these smugglers that take take them in, um, they just you know leave a lot of migrants there, and, and you know lost in the middle of nowhere, or they take them down areas where it's just it's just too too hard to to cross because people run out of water and they end up drinking, you know. Uh, bad cattle water and they fall ill and they, they, they perish and you know it's just it's become a, a tragedy and um, at this point you know very conservative estimates are that in the last decade over you know they say minimum 2,000 people have perished uh, it's probably much likely to be higher but these are based on skeletal remains um, that Border Patrol other statistics so um, so 2,000 people have died um, officially but there are probably many more. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about this place, the Sonoran Desert. You write that uh, you could you could die here of um, dehydration. You could also die there of uh, of hypothermia. Well, that's that's right. You know, it's a very um, it's it's a desert. You know, I'm from the Northeast, so I'm used to these you know these different seasons and and not this intense sudden heat or this intense sudden drop in temperature. People can also perish on a winter day when it suddenly gets very cold. Um, and, and, but most deaths occur, uh, you know, when it's very, very, very hot, triple, triple digit heat, um, and, and they just run out of water. It's a very, I mean, if you stand there in the Sonoran Desert, especially if you go, um, to the area that's part of the Tahona Odom, uh, Indian Reservation, and you just stand out there and you look around for miles and miles and miles, you can't even imagine, you know, walking a few miles in that heat without much water, let alone, you know, two days worth of walking, um, very, very, lots of cactus and, and um, you know, wild animals that also um, contribute to the problem. And, and so, anyway, it's just a very, very, you know, hard journey. And the, the people that are coming are all, all ages. So you hear stories of, you know, children who perish, grandmothers who perish, um, fathers that are trying to be reunited with their families. They've been deported. Uh, mothers, all ages. You know, when you talk to Border Patrol, they'll say, yeah, yeah, you know, no, we have seen everything. You know, infants, the elderly, and they're all coming through this, you know, these, these hundreds of miles of desert uh, and poor shape. Uh, and, and, and everyone has tragedies to tell. Mm-hmm. Border Patrol and, um, and, and Minute, Minutemen, who I spoke to, and um, Sybil um, patrol folks and everyone in between. Everyone can agree upon one thing: that this is a real tragedy. Hmm. Um, and everybody, but that everybody disagrees on what what's what to do about it. Yeah, you write that uh, you outline the issues. Uh, many of us are familiar with those, and of course, everyone you talk to, I, I imagine that you know we talked about the issues as well as the human stories. And you say that let's not forget that at the bottom of this, this is about death. And that, um, as we're speaking, you and I right now, there's there's someone or pr- probably multiple people trying to cross the Sonoran Desert. Perhaps some of them will not make it today. Exactly, yes. Um, I wonder if you could tell me a specific story. This is in an op-ed piece that you, uh, that you wrote uh, in the uh, New York Times 
uh, Josue Ernesto Oliva Serrano. It's a heartbreaking yep. story. Yeah, this is a, that is one of the yeah, this is one of the, real, the stories that really sticks in my mind. Um, this was a this was a man who had come to the United States, um, I believe, you know, five or six or seven years ago, and he had come to uh, illegally. He had he had come and he had settled in Arizona. Um, sorry, in Oklahoma, and he met an American uh, woman of Latino descent there in Oklahoma at church. They met at a church service. Uh, and they fell in love, and they they um, got married, and they had uh, two children, and uh, everything was you know going as it was going. But then um, I I think at some point he he what I understand is he had some kind of a minor traffic accident that wasn't his fault, but as a result uh, he had his papers examined, and they realized that he had come here illegally, uh, and so he was um, he was ultimately deported. Um, back to Mexico, where he was, uh, or, I'm sorry, uh, Honduras. So he was Honduras, um, yes. So he he went back, and of course he was divided. This is a very common story, unfortunately, that a lot of um, fathers and mothers are being separated from their American-born children. Um, so, um, so he was in Honduras and really wanted to get back to his, his children, and he was willing to do anything. So he... he got the money together and um, took off on this journey across the Sonoran Desert through Tohono O'odham uh, Indian land. And after, you know, a day of walking in the heat, he drank some bad cattle water and became uh, very ill. Uh, and so he kept going but couldn't go much longer and, and perished on a hilltop in the middle of the reservation. Now, his wife hadn't heard from him for many days and wondered what had happened, so she began to contact, you know, all, everyone she could come across. And ultimately, she got in touch with um, a member of the Tohono O'odham Indian tribe, um, who's well-known, actually. His name is Mike Wilson, uh, and he's been helping out, trying to find, uh, leaving out water, first of all, at different places on the reservation for such migrants, but also helping families find uh, remains on, on the reservation because the politics of, of, of non-tribal members coming into the land uh, is, is complicated. But as a member, he, he knows the land very well, and he likes to help families find uh, their, their loved ones' remains. So it, so ultimately, she came and stayed with him and, and his um, partner, and they went out looking, and it took several, several days. Um, and then they got a call from a, um, a smuggler or someone who was with the smuggler who had been with them when uh, Josue perished. And she said uh, she gave them the coordinates on, on MapQuest or Google Maps to find where he had perished, on what hilltop exactly he had perished. And she said that she described the death. It was, you know, a very sad um, passing. And then they went out with these coordinates, and they actually found the remains. Uh, Josue's brother was also there. And he identified his brother because uh, his his remains were quite mummified by the time they got to them. But he saw the pin in his in his uh, brother's leg, and then he he broke down. Uh, then so that's how the body was identified. But that's just that's sadly um, a sort of common story around these these deaths and this you know this tragedy where families have been divided um, because of deportation measures um, and and then being forced to come through the desert as a way of trying to reunite with their loved ones and die in a really terrible, really terrible death. And a lot of these remains go unfound. So there are several families, not hundreds of families in the end, probably, who have never found their loved ones. 
And uh, we we tend to debate these issues in a much more dispassionate way, don't we? It's it's ideas, it's not people. Is is your hope to by humanizing this, by telling the stories that uh, that I don't know we, that we can come together in the middle? What uh, right. what is your hope? Exactly. You know, I think in the end, I don't. I, my intent was never to provide solutions. However, I think that my hope was to sort of provide a model for a solution, which is sort of. Um, you know, looking at all the different viewpoints involved so that we can, right, like like you said, humanize the debate and realize that um, everyone in this controversy and this tragedy is, is a human being, and they all have reasons for, you know, their their fears or their, their, their tragedies. Um, so my hope was to let people see that there's a range of issues and to hopefully open up a dialogue you know, at any level, local, national, international level, to get people to to see the different sides of the debate, to begin to talk about how, what to do about it, and to see, you know, the death is the real tragedy, but around that is a larger tragedy, which is, you know, what is causing people to migrate north, you know, in general, and in, in a global, you know, perspective, it's not just the U.S.-Mexico border. It's it's so much larger. I think the U.N. estimated a few years ago that there are 215 million people with migratory status. Uh, that's really quite enormous. I think it's something like 2 or 3% of the population of the world. So this is, a, this is a problem that needs to be discussed on multiple levels and not be stereotyped or, you know, put into sort of these ideological boxes where everyone says it's either amnesty or deportation. You're either legal or you're illegal. You're either high-skilled or low-skilled worker. Um, so I was hoping to sort of foster somewhat of a dialogue or at least just to raise awareness about the complexity of this issue, focusing on the deaths but the larger complexity around it to get past the sort of black-and-white thinking and hopefully open up some gray spaces to think about it. For Access Utah today, we're spending the hour with Ananda Rose. Uh, her book is Showdown in the Sonoran Desert, Religion, Law, and the Immigration Controversy. And Ananda Rose is a published poet and journalist. She recently received a doctorate on religion and society from Harvard Divinity School. Uh, to uh, look at this issue from a from human perspective, uh, she went to the Sonoran Desert, southern Arizona. Uh, about 14% of the border... About 50% of the deaths uh, occur in that uh, Tucson sector. And we're talking about the immigration controversy from this perspective on the program today. Uh, you write that uh, this issue is a profoundly moral issue. You approach it this way. I think most of the people you talk to look at it that way. Uh, the, certainly the, the faith-based aid workers are looking at it this way. And I believe the Border Patrol agents, the, the Minutemen, would... would would have a they'd look at it from a moral perspective as well certainly yes exactly right from speaking of the Minutemen or, or civil patrol groups um, and border patrol they really they really have a strong belief in, in the law and the value of the law and, and the value of respect for sovereign borders uh, and so they're you know they really do um, most most everyone I actually everyone I spoke to had um, sympathy for the plight of, of migrants and why they were coming and if they'd been deported or divided from their families. But they also really, for them, ethical their ethical reasoning really started um, with the law and that if we don't respect the law, then, you know, then things will turn into a certain chaos and, and a certain danger, which the border is a dangerous, chaotic place. 
um, as many borders are. You know, borders everywhere can attract a sort of sort of violence and prompt fences, and um, I think a lot of conflict can be seen at borders. So, unfortunately, they you know they're they're right. It's a very uh, uh, sort of violent, conflicted, chaotic place with you know illegal. Um, drugs coming northward and illegal arms going southward and uh, a whole bunch of terrible smugglers that don't really have any respect for the migrants that they're taking across. Uh, you know, everything from, you know, abuse of, of women down there in the sex trade. Um, you know, that's just a very um, unpleasant place in many ways, uh, the border. So I think that a lot of folks who are more um, conservative or leaning towards law really think that we need to find solutions based on you know, abiding by the law, which has included building hundreds of miles of wall and um, and fencing and, and, and deporting people who are here illegally, uh, regardless of why they came. Um, and what, where the people who are more sort of uh, like less leaning in the debate, you know, the, the, a lot of the folks I talked to were rooted in a sort of uh, Judeo-Christian ethic about how they responded to these migrants. And so their ideas were located um, often, for example, the book of Genesis uh, that stresses that all people are created equally, you know, in the image of God, um, and there are no real borders. It's just, you know, it's, it's God's place, and there aren't borders. Or, uh, you know, the injunctions in the Bible to love the neighbor as, as yourself, um, injunctions to, you know, help and show compassion to the stranger or the less fortunate. Uh, there are many stories in the Bible about about that and what our duty is to the stranger in our midst, um, using Jesus as an example. Um, and then, you know, there are people who aren't necessarily, that I met, that weren't necessarily rooted in a Judeo-Christian or uh, just that they believed in a sort of the dignity of, of every human life uh, and were... were you know, motivated by that that desire to show compassion and to help people who are in need. Um, so those are the different sort of ethical leanings that one can find. We're talking with Ananda Rose on the program, Showdown in the Sonoran Desert, Religion, Law, and the Immigration Controversy is the book. And Ananda Rose uh, talked with many, many people in the Sonoran Desert area, the Tucson sector of the uh, border uh, to, uh, to get a lot of different perspectives. Her hope is that by uh, telling these stories, uh, we can uh, perhaps uh, better find a solution to this intractable, seemingly intractable problem. Uh, and she uh, divides the book into uh, two sections, religion, and uh, tells the story of faith-based workers and uh, people coming at it, as, as she just said, uh, from a biblical-inspired uh, ethic. And uh, the next section is law, this would be the Border Patrol and Minutemen uh, coming at it from perspective of uh, the uh, nation's right to control its sovereign borders and the rule of law. Uh, we will be back after a brief break. We're talking with Ananda Rose on immigration. American journalism has been through a few rocky years, but there is some brilliant reporting out there. I'm Jim Fleming. Next time, under the best of our knowledge, Catherine Boo reports from the slums of Mumbai. The host of Radiolab tells science stories. And Tom Wolfe takes on Miami. It's to the best of our knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Back with Ananda Rose, who's written a new book, Showdown in the Sonoran Desert, Religion, Law, and the Immigration Controversy. 
That's out from Oxford University Press. Nanda Rose is a published poet and journalist. She recently received a doctorate in religion and society from Harvard Divinity School. And Nanda Rose uh, divides this book into uh, two sections. It's the two sides of this debate, religion. She talks with uh, faith-based aid workers, uh, um, I believe soup kitchen run by some Catholic nuns, for example. Uh, the other section is law, where she talks with uh, Border Patrol agents and uh, Patriots Coalition and the like. And uh, the hope here, her hope, is to uh, get beyond the stereotypes, the labels, and uh, hear people's stories to the humane center of uh, this issue. She reminds us, at its heart, the crisis in the Sonoran Desert is death. Some 2,000 people have died in the last 10 years in the Sonoran Desert trying to cross the border. Probably there are more, and only 2,000 have been uh, been found, identified. Uh, Nanda Rose is with us uh, for the hour. I want to uh, jump in, uh, but I'd like to start with part two, uh, because I think... Um, you know, we've been talking about some of these heartbreaking stories. As you hear some of these stories, uh, you your sympathies maybe uh, gravitate in the, in that direction. And so your interesting question, as you rode along with the Border Patrol and as you mustered with the Patriots Coalition, was what is everyone so afraid of? Right. Right, and that, that was ultimately there was a lot of fear. There is a lot of fear down there. Uh, you know, at the border. And, you know, it's definitely a major factor behind border enforcement policies. Uh, And as I I interviewed all these folks, I I came to sort of see that there were, you know, three sort of categories of fear that I, you know, I show in the book. And the first, you know, category of fear is sort of the criminal elements. So, you know, there's a lot of fear about terrorists coming through the border. Um, Although as, as, as of today, I, I mean, there's nobody who has come through the U.S.-Mexico border that has been a terrorist, uh, that, which doesn't mean it can't happen. It sure could happen, um, but that it hasn't happened so far, but it is a fear, you know, and also a fear of others, you know, nefarious characters. You know, I think it was in 2009 that 16% of apprehended migrants had a criminal record, uh, and as a Border Patrol, you know, uh, agent I spoke to said it can be anything, you know, from simple marijuana possession to you know, all sorts of other um, crimes. So, you know, there's that there's that fear that, that bad people are coming in um, to our country. And then, of course, the second largest fear is the sort of domestic concerns, you know, that um, illegal uh, immigrants will take our jobs or that they will deplete taxpayer sort of run institutions like hospitals and schools um, and that those 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 public funds should be for American citizens, but yet they're being drained um, on, on people who are not citizens. Uh, and then the third fear is sort of a, a more abstract fear, which is a sort of sense that um, that this, this, this immigration, the legal immigration pattern is sort of a threat to some sort of perceived American way of life. Um, I think Pat Buchanan talks about this in his book, State of Emergency, uh, The Third World Conquest. Third World Invasion and Conquest of America, and, and also Samuel Huntington, they, they talk about how uh, this, this immigration, this new migrant pattern from, um, from Central America and Mexico are really um, somehow eroding this sort of patriotism, this American way of life. So those are the fears that I think um, ultimately run behind um, these these viewpoints, uh, and, and one, it's up to each person to decide, you know, how credible they are and, and, and the like. 
And you talk about trying to get past stereotypes and the, some of the stereotypes you list. Heartless Border Patrol agents, bigoted uh, Minutemen, uh, sanctimonious uh, faith-based aid workers. I wonder specifically, since uh, I'd like to talk about part two right now, uh, were those stereotypes, if you had them dispelled in talking to some of these people uh, with Border Patrol agents, Minutemen, I Patriots Coalition? I did. I went in with all sorts of, uh, in my own mind, stereotypes of all those those people that I was that I was going to talk to. And, you know, you always find some people, uh, you know, who do sort of match some of those, those ideas and those perceptions. However, for the most part, I was really um, dissuaded from those, those viewpoints. You know, I met, I met a whole bunch of Border Patrol agents just sort of... Um, hanging out around the border. They, they were everywhere, so I'd be photographing, you know, the border wall, and they'd come up to me and start talking. And one in particular, who I'll never forget, you know, came up to see who, who I was, who's this shenanigan taking pictures of the wall. And as soon as he found out, I was no trouble. I was just um, doing a, a research project. He started talking and opening up about how before he became a Border Patrol agent, he really felt very strongly about illegal immigration, very negatively about it, uh, very angry about it. But that in his daily encounters with um, migrants, you know, who were suffering, who he found in the desert, who were dehydrated, who were, you know, had blisters that were impeding them from walking and um, divided from their family, all these issues, he just said, you know, it really changed the way I look at things. Uh, and I, you know, so that, that sort of thing happens a lot. And all the other Border Patrol agents I met myself were very, they really expressed uh, sympathy for um these folks who are just trying to have a better life for themselves, for the most part. You know, they will also say, of course, there are some not-so-wonderful um, characters who are, who are also coming across. Um, but they really, you know, and, and a lot of the Border Patrol agents themselves have some, you know, Mexican-American descent. There's some large percentage of, of people who themselves were either born in Mexico or Central America or whose families were born there or who've lived right on the, you know, U.S.-Mexico border all their lives. So, uh, there's a lot of sympathy in that in that respect. You talk about a specific Border Patrol agent who uh, you say is torn between his doing his duty, he believes in it, and uh, an experience uh, of finding a dead baby girl. Right. Well, that's that's one of these, these stories, you know, where I actually was on a uh, ride-along with this particular agent, and uh, he himself was... Um, actually born in Mexico and uh, became a citizen through legal means after serving in the U.S. military. Um, and he then decided to join the Border Patrol. And, you know, he's, he's, he speaks his bilingual, speaks Spanish, English. Uh, his, his family's from Mexico, um, but lives on the border in Texas. And, he, yeah, he, you know, he said he, he just, there's so many sad stories um, that he comes across every day. And one in particular was, uh, you know, two, two uh, young children that he found in the desert next to their mother who had perished. Um, and uh, I think ultimately he named his daughter, uh, his own daughter, after one of these little girls that he found, you know, there. But at the same point, he also feels that, you know, it's his duty to protect, you know, America's borders. And also he really does believe that, um, he's out there helping people because, you know, when, when Border Patrol come across uh, these, many of these folks who are trying to cross illegally in the middle of nowhere, you know, this man, this agent said that he felt like he was really helping them because he, those, are, those are a few less people that, although they're apprehended and deported, they're not going to die in the desert. Um, so that's just, you know, one, one story of many. You just have to go down there and start talking to people with an open mind and, you know, you'll hear all sorts of stories. Um, there's another, you know, one of the, the civil patrol folks that I talked to, 
um, he, you know, he was upset because he, he actually uh, set up his own cam- um, hidden thermal cameras throughout uh, the mountains along the border. He knew all the migrant routes. And I don't know if it's still up online anymore, but it was uh, invasionpix.com. And he would he would put these clips of these from these hidden thermal cameras of you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people coming right across the mountains, right there in his in his backyard, basically. Uh, and uh, it's, it really is interesting. It really does show that you know that that, that these people are coming across. And and he showed um, has videos of different drug smugglers coming across and. And anyway, you know, it's just it's a very it's very interesting down there. You can and so you know you can even be sympathetic. I was very sympathetic to to his to his cameras and to his you know his imaging and and his and his, his his anger about the U.S. you know federal government's inability to to really solve it or stop it or find a solution to it. What do you hear from from this side of the debate when you talk to Border Patrol agents and uh, Civil Patrol uh, people, uh, Minutemen? What do they, what do they see as a as a potential solution? You lock the whole border you know, up. What, what do they yeah, say? Yeah, well, well, you know, of course, you know, a heart, continual hardening hardening of the border. So, you know, strong personnel and infrastructure. You know, like the like the cameras that they have, and and the actual physical wall, which is really quite astounding to see. If 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 you, if you haven't been there, and then you and you go there for the first time, and you see this. This huge wall that just goes on for you know miles and miles and sometimes double walls. It's really amazing to to see that. So I think I mean I think they really believe we need to keep uh, keep um, the border really um, solid and, and, and impenetrable. However, there were a lot of people who I met, uh, many border patrol agents who I spoke to actually who also believe that along with you know, you know, working on um, border security that we also needed to be working on, you know, in Congress, in the U.S. federal government level, we need to start working very uh, seriously on, um, on reforming immigration properly and having, you know, sort of proper work permit solutions and, you know, guest worker solutions and these sort of things um, that in, until things were also being talked about um, at the federal level that, that that this was not going to end, but it was just going to keep going. Our guest for the hour is Ananda Rose. She's written a new book, Showdown in the Sonoran Desert, Religion, Law, and the Immigration Controversy. She went to the Sonoran Desert, southern Arizona, a border that uh, comprises about 14% of the overall Mexican-U.S. border. Uh, it is, hasn't occurred over the last 10 years, 50% of the deaths. That's due to, she says, to the funnel effect, hardening of the borders elsewhere, uh, means that uh, potential migrants are uh, going out into the desert, and uh, many of them are dying out there. That uh, really brings into uh, focus the immigration controversy. And uh, Ananda Rose is uh, is trying to uh, let these stories be told on all sides of the issue, and uh, in an attempt to uh, to help us understand the issue better. We're talking with Ananda Rose for for the hour. I wanted to. The other thing I wanted to uh, yes, go ahead. Because you were you were you were um, talking about how death is the focus, and death is certainly the focus. I also wanted to highlight that uh, alongside death is just a generalized suffering that that migrants are are, are experiencing. It's, it's not only that they that many are dying, but many more are actually, especially women, for example, um, they are being raped quite often. Um, by smugglers and on the journey. Um, there's a lot of abuse. I met a lot of um, migrants down who had been deported back to Mexico who had 
huge open wounds on, on their faces, their bodies from, um, you know, smugglers who took to them with, with knives. There's robbery. A lot of migrants go out into the desert and then smugglers take their, their money or their ore uh, on the way up to the, the border. Actually, in Mexico, there's a lot of abuse, especially of Central American migrants. Um, and, you know, and then they're abandoned. And then not only that, once that the migrants are uh, detained, they, they, they have to go through this whole experience of being detained, usually for, you know, 24 to 72 hours, uh, short-term detention. Uh, and, and now I think it's something like 10% of them go through um, the court system as well um, so that they have a, a criminal record on file uh, for coming in illegally. So a lot of them are going through um, these sort of mass trials at, for example, the deconceded courthouse in Tucson. So it's a larger picture of suffering. It is, it is the death which is the most tragic, um, but there's this larger issue sort of connected to it. You talk about um, how borders are, you know, it's an artificial line in the sand. Um, and, you know, for centuries, nations have been dealing with what does the border mean? And you say, I believe you're right, that the what the border means to us says a lot about us as a as a people. Yeah, that's right. There's a there's a quote. I think it's from uh, a fellow who wrote in the National Geographic uh, magazine about the U.S.-Mexico border, and you know he talked about how borders attract violence, and violence prompts fences, and then fences mutate into walls, and then everyone pays attention uh, to the wall, um, and then and the wall becomes sort of a, a slap in the face. So we, we, we love walls because they protect us, but we're sort of embarrassed by them because what the message is about our sort of uh, unhappy relationship with our neighbors, uh, and that ultimately they flow from two sources, you know, fear and desire for control. Um, so, yeah, I think borders, you know, just as, you know, we, we have doors on our houses and we have fences in our yards and we have a certain sense of propriety around our, our bodies, you know, the, the borders are just a larger expression of that, um, that divide. So I think they give us divided feelings uh, and, and, and a lot of, you know, folks don't know what to do with it. And it's a larger question. It's not just the U.S.-Mexico border. It's borders all over the world. You know, there's no shortage of, of, of terrible things happening uh, at these, these crossing, these divided lines. Yeah, you you uh, say that, you know, correctly, I think, that uh, U.S. and Mexico is not the only border in question. You point out uh, there's, uh, in some of the Mediterranean uh, areas, there is a massive migration north from Africa. And oh, some of these exactly, same yeah. debates are being are being debated in those nations. They are, yeah. The EU has very similar debates going on. I mean, the thing that's really unique about the U.S.-Mexico border is it's it's so very long. It's two, two, you know, almost two thousand miles of of borderland between these two nations, and it's, uh, you know, and and the the divide, the economic divide between the folks who live in the U.S. on average and those in Mexico is so large. Um, so that's really unusual. You know, for example, in, in Africa, we have, you know, you'll, you'll often hear um, every few months about a tragedy of, uh, you know, a boatload of, of migrants who are coming from different African nations and coming over in an overloaded, you know, boat and who drown in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and then sometimes these folks are also apprehended and they're, you know, they're kept in detention centers in places like Malta or islands off Italy. Uh, and it's, it's an issue that's, that's everywhere, really. Um, but again, the U.S.-Mexico border is very unique in, in how long it is. You uh, identify uh, 
that this crisis, migrant deaths in the Sonoran Desert, you write, uh, happen, is happening on multiple levels. You talk about squabbles between law enforcement agents and uh, faith-based aid workers. Uh, you go back in one chapter to remember uh, the sanctuary movement of the 1980s. Uh, right. This time it reminds you of that. We'll talk about that a little later. Uh, you say it's another level is that uh, the, there's no federal immigration reform. That might be a little more likely now with the with the recent election. But I'm interested in talking about the this third level. You say the deepest level, and you, you quote John Paul Sartre, the problem of the existence of others, and that the threats, uh, the threats presented by the mere existence of others opposed to our well-being. And you talk about this this term that's that's used, alien. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, yeah, you know, when I looked at it, you know, it's, it's just like these concentric circles or like Russian nesting dolls, and you you look at the you know the big one, and then you but then you take it out, and there's another and another and another. So you have all these squabbles right going on at the local level in Tucson and Southern Arizona, but then you, they get larger, and you see you know people are talking about them all over the United States, and then. You know, they're talking about them all over the world, really. And then, so when you, and then ultimately, I looked at sort of a philosophical level uh, to think about the sphere that we all have, you know, and and look sort of at the existentialist thinkers uh, and how they might think about, you know, the other. Uh, and and ultimately, you know, the term alien uh, does sort of describe how we feel when we are approached with someone that we do not know that's totally other than ourselves. Uh, and and it, it it can be very very frightening uh, and and you know they there's a feeling that your own sense of person may be um, sort of destroyed or eroded or torn down by the presence of another person who may take something from you. If it's just you, then you know you can take have control over your own body and your own well-being. But as soon as there's another person in your in your midst. And you have to sort of negotiate with that person, and your your own health may not, not and well-being may not come first anymore. There's another person. So ultimately, I mean, we're always negotiating relationships with others, uh, and 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 it's always very difficult. Uh, often very rewarding. But often, you know, there's a lot of negotiating going on. So I think at some level, it's just it's just it's scary to be with people we don't know. Um, it doesn't have to be. Uh, you know, a migrant can be your neighbor who you don't know very well or someone you come across, you know, out in public somewhere. Um, so I just think it's a human, a larger human existential issue. Is that why you would think, I mean, you know, there are some obvious explanations as to why this particular controversy and debate is so loaded emotionally. But is, is that why, that one reason perhaps? I really, I do believe that that's one reason, and um, even some of the fears that um, that migrants are taking our jobs away. Well, that that may be true, and and also maybe draining certain public funds. But often, uh, what migrants are giving back to our communities is often not looked at um, by certain groups. You know how much they may be saving us in doing jobs that we don't want to do, that are just you know cleaning toilets and. You know, and doing dishwashing and anything, you know, yard work, these things that we, you know, don't want to do. And there, in a certain way, migrants can also be uh, keeping our economy afloat, which is, you know, really struggling at the moment. So, um, you know, I think people also need to think about how others also reward us. It's, I think it's also really fine and normal to think about how others um, can frighten us in our, our sense of well-being. But I think also others can also be a great reward, what they can give to us. Uh, as well. 
We're going to take another break. When we come back, we'll talk about part one. We'll uh, take a little more in-depth look at the uh, faith-based aid workers. The uh, Humane Borders and No More Deaths, a couple of organizations, the Sanctuary Movement of the 1980s. Uh, before we leave uh, part two, the, the law part of religion and law, uh, you, you spent a chapter talking about the U.S.-Mexican barrier wall, and uh, that gives you a jumping-off point to talk about the logic behind the current border enforcement strategy. As you talk to Border Patrol agents and, and others, what, what, what is that logic? Um, you know, I think it's just security, security, security. Um, uh, and so, you know, there's just, I think, in fact, you know, there hasn't been any immigration reform or anything, any sort of federal movement uh, about immigration except uh, for uh, money for security. So, so the Secure Fence Act, I think it was 2006, uh, which uh, funneled a whole bunch of money into being able to make, I think it was like almost, you know, hundreds more miles of wall, especially in Arizona. Um, and so the only real movement on this issue has actually been um, security. Uh, you know, there was a large cameras set up. Uh, they t- tried to do um, what they called a virtual wall. So in places where they couldn't build a physical wall, they tried to use these uh, amazing Boeing uh, cameras and sensors. Uh, but ultimately that, that actually failed um, uh, for many reasons. Um and, uh, but, you know, the, the question about, about the wall is how effective is it, how ineffective is it? You know, I think, I think, I think it's been proven to be actually effective. And, and that actually, it's worth mentioning that, um, that migrant numbers are down to, uh, you know, almost 40 decade low. Um, and I think that's a result of many factors. That's, that's in part the, the security, the wall, the infrastructure, the added personnel. I think it's the, um, the economy, the economic downturn. Um, so there's other there's other factors uh, for this um, downturn in, in migration. The uh, of course one result is this funnel effect you talked about. If if you secure part of the border, then uh, if you don't have it all, you know, fenced off, then migrants are going to take another route, perhaps into the desert where they may die. I wonder if you put that too or. Border Patrol agents or others on that side of the issue talk to you about that. Well, yeah, you know, it's it's true that they, you know, they definitely almost everyone you know admitted that, you know, this is a tragic result of of this strategy. But a lot of folks still say the strategy really works, and in many respects, it does. It just depends on how you how you look at success. Um, if you look at success by how many people, uh, how many less people are are coming in, making it in, trying to make the journey. You've definitely succeeded. However, um, you know, although uh, apprehension levels are at uh, an almost historic low, um, the rate of death um, in terms of those apprehensions uh, is at is the highest point in history. So that means for, you know, so I think that, I think last year there was 179 people officially who perished, uh, but there were um, not so many apprehensions. Uh, so you had more deaths per apprehension. So, um, and, and the, the point to that is that those who want to want to come by, through to this country, they will do it no matter what. And it's recently a lot of people who have been divided or separated from their families, and nothing will stop them. Nothing will stop a lot of people, you know, who want to look for a particular job, who are, who are running away from violence in their country. Um, those people who have set their minds on coming are going to come, and they are going to come through the desert, most likely. Uh, and in that journey, you know, they're putting their whole lives, you know, at risk. 
So I think everybody can admit that this has happened, that this funnel effect has happened. Um, but I think many um, folks from Border Patrol or, or civil militia groups would say, but that's, you know, we've succeeded. The, the wall has succeeded. The security is better than it ever has been. Um, you know, it just depends. We're talking with Ananda Rose, author of Showdown in the Sonoran Desert, Religion, Law, and the Immigration Controversy. When we come back from a brief break, we'll uh, turn to the, the part one of these, this, these two, part, two sides of the controversy. We'll talk about the religion side of it and uh, faith-based aid workers who believe it is their religious and moral duty to offer a hand of hospitality to the stranger in their midst. Back after a break. Hello, I'm Brianna Bodley. As a member of the Utah Public Radio News Team, it's my job to join correspondents across the state, from Richville to Moab to the Uinta Basin and southern Utah. Our statewide network of news reporters provide updates on what is happening on a national level and the impact those decisions have on what we're doing here in Utah. UPR provides that important link between national and state news, the news and views that make UPR your favorite public radio station for statewide Utah news. We're back with Ananda Rose, who's author of Showdown in the Sonoran Desert, Religion, Law, and the Immigration Controversy. Uh, she went to the Sonoran Desert in 2009, I believe it was, interviewed hundreds of people. She says, uh, anyone there, uh, they'll have a story, they'll tell you about it. And she talked with the Minutemen and Border Patrol agents, ranchers uh, with faith-based uh, aid workers, migrants themselves, uh, and uh, many others and uh, trying to put a human face on this controversy, hoping that uh, telling these stories can help us to move past the impasse in this uh, immigration uh, controversy. And, uh, Ananda Rose, I want to move now to the religion part of it. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about the motivations of the faith-based uh, aid workers and this idea of hospitality and uh, reaching out to the stranger in your midst. Right, yeah. So, you know, actually, originally, I, my, I was hoping to do some research on the original sanctuary movement of the 1980s and to look at the folks who had the founders of that movement and where, what had become of them and the people they had helped across and what had become of them. Um, and this, the sanctuary movement was uh, briefly stated was in the 1980s during the civil wars of Central America, uh, a lot of uh, refugees were coming from those countries and trying to... Uh, trying to come to the United States um, and, and seek refugee status. Uh, and this was denied uh, mostly from, by the U.S. government. And, and so there was actually this wave of, of people dying in, in the desert in, in the Tucson area back in the 80s. And uh, what the Tucson uh, religious groups, uh, different um, churches and temples in the area got together, and they wanted to put a, get together a task force. And ultimately... What happened was they, over the years, they connected in with hundreds of other churches and temples throughout the country, and they were illegally helping to shepherd some of these refugees who were fleeing the violence in their countries uh, through the border. And this was back before the wall, so they would just walk them across, you know, and, um, and house them in, in, in their houses in Tucson and in churches in Tucson until they could find places for them to go all throughout the country and into Canada even. So that was the sanctuary movement. And I actually originally went down there to see what had happened with those people. And what I found was that those people had actually sort of started this new movement, uh, and they were responding to uh, 
uh, these migrant, this migrant death and suffering, uh, but using those same sort of biblical principles that they were inspired by back in the 80s. Uh, and so, as I think I said earlier, you know, uh, they were very, they really believed strongly in, you know, the Levitical um, calls to love neighbor as yourself. And this was picked up in the New Testament with the teachings of Jesus, uh, who was always um, speaking of helping the least of these, uh, as I think it said in Matthew 25. So the sort of uh, underlying, like, an injunction or Judeo-Christian ethic to show compassion to the less fortunate you know, under any circumstances, that our duty is to, to, to the neighbor. And also, I think a lot of people root their, their hospitality, their ideas of hospitality, sort of in the many stories that you can find in the Bible uh, of, of exile, displacement, forced migration. Um, you can find these all over. So, you know, also, though, on the other hand, you can find people, these are the people I talked with who are inspired by uh, these sort of biblical injunctions of compassion and, and opened up shelters. And, you know, we have, for example, to the two groups that I talked to mainly that are highlighted in the book are uh, Humane Borders. Uh, their mission was, uh, I think their mission said something like motivated by faith. Uh, humane Borders works to create a just and humane border environment. And they're, so they were motivated by, by faith. Uh, to and what their mission was was to put out water in the desert in these key areas where migrants were shown to be dying. Uh, so that's that's one example of of a, of a ministry uh, rooted in biblical principles um, to help migrants. And then you have the other group that I highlighted, which is uh, called No More Deaths, um, and their their mission statement also says something similar. Like we come together as communities of faith and people of conscience. Uh, to express our indignation over the continued deaths of migrants, this sort of thing. Um, and they call themselves communities of faith and people of conscience. So people of conscience is sort of a way to open it up beyond just sort of those who are, just, you know, are a Judeo-Christian you know, background, but people of conscience, just people who feel morally inclined to help the stranger. Um, so it is there. It's really, you know, or you have, you know, you just talk to people like the nuns that I talked to at the border, at the shelter there. You know, I said, what do you, they, one, one nun was expressing dismay over this one, this one migrant that she had been helping, and uh, she didn't think that he was a very good character. And I said, well, how does that make you feel that you're sort of helping some people and some of them aren't, you know, the best character? And she said, well, they're all God's children, and we have to love them all no matter what and hope for the best. And then I, I asked her. I said, "Well, what do you think? I mean, they're crossing the border illegally. What do you what do you think think of that?" And she said, "No, God God has no borders. It's, there are no borders for God in God's eyes." So this is the sort of you know idea that you know or opinion you might see. On the other hand, you can talk to people like the Minutemen or um, other people who are inspired by the Bible, but in a very opposite way. Uh, they often look to, like, Romans 13 uh, in the Bible and talk about uh, that passage speaks about how the law is a gift from God and authority is divinely ordained. So since the law is a gift from God, you have to respect the law first and foremost. Um, but I will say that um, there are not many passages that do support that idea, whereas, uh, you know, the Bible is, is rife with passages about how we are to treat the stranger and ideas of compassion. We're just about out of time. 
Uh, and uh, much else, of course, to talk about. You'll have to read the book. Uh, Showdown in the Sonoran Desert, Religion, Law, and the Immigration Controversy. Ananda Rose is the author. It's uh, published this year by Oxford University Press. I wonder, in conclusion, if I could, do you have your book with you? I do, actually. I wonder if I could just have you read the last paragraph in the entire book, page 154. This uh, kind, of, kind of sets, sets this up for further reflection. Meanwhile, right now, a Border Patrol agent is putting on his uniform for another shift. There is a nun cutting green beans for hungry migrants. There is an aid worker leaving out jugs of water under a mesquite tree. There is a woman and her child sleeping in a shelter in Nogales. There is an old man in a Border Patrol chartered bus being deported to a dusty, dark border town. There is a rancher locking his door in fear. There is a villager in Chiapas who is packing his bags for the journey north. There is a drug smuggler hauling his bundle through the Coronado Mountains. There is someone putting her money into the hand of a coyote, taking her first steps into the Sonoran Desert. And there is you, reading this, asking yourself, what should we do? Good place to end it. That is from uh, Ananda Rosa's book, Showdown in the Sonoran Desert, Religion, Law, and the Immigration Controversy. Ananda Rosa, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, for producer Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. This is Linda Kirvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. Restoring degraded plant communities has a long history on Utah's public lands. The problem began with the Transcontinental Railroad, which enabled transport of livestock from western rangelands to eastern cities. By the late 1800s, vast flocks of ravenous sheep roved Utah's unregulated wildlands. Montane summer pastures were stripped bare, so snowmelt and summer rainfall washed across the ground unchecked, carving deep gullies. Downstream settlements, such as Logan and Manti, incurred ruinous floods and mudflows. Teddy Roosevelt responded to local pleas for federal control by designating our first national forests in Utah. Soon thereafter, the fledgling Forest Service created the Great Basin Research Station east of Ephraim, Utah. It was charged with discovering the cause of the floods. Within two years, large grazing exclosures were built in nearby mountain meadows by the agency's first range ecologist, Arthur Sampson. His research quickly linked overgrazing to denuded meadows, eroding soil, and the floods. By 1914, Sampson advocated for rest rotational grazing. To then restore the impacted plant communities, there followed a landmark program at the station to evaluate plants that could revegetate the degraded watersheds and later restore big game winter range. Led by Perry Plummer, the station evaluated the performance of a thousand species of shrubs, grasses, and wildflowers, some tested in most of Utah's plant communities. Methods to better collect, store, plant, and germinate seeds underpinned the restoration of plant communities that along with the 1934 Taylor Grazing Act ended Utah's frequent canyon floods. That public research continues with the Great Basin Native Seed Selection and Increase Project. Today's goal is to restore plant communities after rangeland fire, stalling and eventually reversing the invasion of flammable exotic grasses and weeds in the Intermountain West. Dedicated warehouses in Ephraim, Ely, and Boise can store up to 3 million pounds of seed, a testimony to further progress in farming and collecting desirable seed. The seed is spread by aircraft over rocky places, 
while on gentler slopes, versatile rangeland seeders can place each kind of seed at the right depth from tiny sagebrush to big grass seeds, all in a single pass over uneven ground. For every planting that takes hold, another weedy legacy of 100-year-old overgrazing is finally repaired. This is Linda Curvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan. KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Mm-hmm.